0: Uh, For those of you who don't get to go to junior church, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Look at the story, I I call it the tale of two kings. We usually think of it as a a story of three kings, but we'll find out that actually there's two kings in this story. Um, But if you would turn there, we'll read through it together. Again, it's Matthew chapter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening the treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the man who faithfully wrote down what happened in history for our teaching. And we pray as we look at these, these verses written by Matthew that you would teach us through words that may have become very familiar to us but that you may teach us new things about who you are and what you want us to do this year. Amen. Now, as, uh, as some of you know, I work for an insurance company. I handle auto claims, so people talk to me after they've crashed their cars. Usually, it's been pretty bad crashes. And this last week, someone called me, and you know, we are talking about his car, and the car was not repairable, and he said, you know, the accident happened just a few hundred yards from my house. We were almost home. And he said, you know, I've, I've often heard that most of the accidents happen close to your home. I just never really thought it would happen to me. And I don't know what the exact statistics are, but a large, a large number of auto accidents does happen within a few miles of people's homes. And I don't know what all the reasons are, but part of it, I think, is that these streets we are so familiar with, we've, we've driven on them, we drive them every day, two, three, four times, all the time, and so, When things become very familiar, we may not be paying as close attention to what's going on around us when we drive. As the saying goes, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. We just don't pay as much attention, and sometimes something happens we weren't expecting, and an accident happens. Now, something like that may be true about this story as well, the story of the, the Magi or the Wise Men. We've probably read it, heard it, maybe even told it dozens of times, We think, yeah, we we definitely know this story. Every every year it comes by, Christmas time especially. But we may be so used to it that we miss what Matthew is actually trying to tell us. We may have read it so many times that we don't actually go to the text and say, well, why did Matthew tell this story? Why did he tell it the way he did? What is his point? He was not just trying to add some characters to our nativity scenes. He was actually trying to communicate the Word of God a message from God through including this story. And how does this story, how should this story challenge and change our lives? Because that's what the Word of God wants to do. So we're going to try to answer some of those questions by first looking at the details of how Matthew is telling this story, then drawing out the implications for our lives. And one of the first things that uh, you may have noticed as we read this is the story kind of has two acts, two scenes, two parts to it. Uh, just like You know, many modern plays. You go to the play, there's Act 1, there's a break, there's Act 2. Matthew tells the story in two scenes as well. So the first scene takes place in Jerusalem, and the second scene takes place in Bethlehem. So we'll look at these scenes a little bit here. And obviously the first scene starts at the beginning of the story. And the first verse sets the, the scene for us. So it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Tells us when this story is happening, of course. Now, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, there's not very much Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew. The birth of Jesus takes up half a verse. If you look at uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 25, or 20, we'll start at 24, it says, Joseph awoke from his sleep. God had given him a dream, basically saying, um, Take Mary as your wife, because the child is for me. And so it says, Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. That's the whole Christmas story in Matthew. No manger, no journey to Bethlehem, no shepherds, no angels, no songs. Matthew just says, guess what? Jesus was born. And then straight on from there, the next place he goes is to this account of these visitors from the east. And so, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and and as you read the story, you'll you'll see that we often put the wise men right there when Jesus was born, but the time frame of this is probably at least a couple of months, probably more than a year after Jesus was born, uh, is is when this story takes place. So Matthew specifically leaves out most people that come and see Jesus and says, hey, I'm not going to talk about all these people that Luke talked about and however many people came to visit Jesus within the first year because it says the shepherds told everyone, so I'm sure more people came. And he says, no, I'm, I'm just, I just pick this one story about visitors to Jesus because this is what I'm trying to tell you. And so the, the people that he picks, it says, are magi, from the East. Now the word magi, probably Wiseman is a good translation, it could refer to a wide variety of, of what we maybe call scholars or scientists. Um, they could be studying the, the skies or, or other disciplines pursuing things like astrology, interpretation of dreams, they would study sacred writings uh, or, or magic, the word is also used for sorcerers. Um, based on what the Magi here say that they've seen a star, they most likely fell into the category of people that studied the stars, studied sacred writings, uh, things like that. So, wise men, Magi are are probably good translations. Kings, not so much. This is not a word that was used for actual kings. Um, So we often talk about three kings, but Magi or wise men probably be a better reflection of what they are. Um, And then, we don't get a lot of details from them. It's interesting that Matthew, you know, when, we, when we read the story in, in books or something, we always start in the East. We start with them seeing the star and talking to each other and figuring things out. Matthew just says, we, we don't really know much about them. We just know that they are from the East. And you might think, well, you know, a lot of people are from the East. Um, but if you, read, if you read the Bible, details are never told there for no reason. Matthew specifically wants us to know that these Magi came from the East. And the importance of the East goes back all the way to the Old Testament, back to the very beginning of the Old Testament, when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. Which direction did they go? To the East. When Cain killed Abel and he he fled, he fled to the East. So the East, from the very beginning, came to mean a place where people who are banished from God, who are far away from God. That, that's what happens in the East. The Tower of, of Babel, the story, they travel to the East, and they say, let's build a city here and disobey God here. And then, on top of all that, when the Israelites, through continual disobedience, were taken out of their country, which way did they go? To the East. So the East, in the Old Testament, is a bad place to be. But now, we find that people from the East have actually come to Jerusalem. And so all these movement to the East being a bad place on the Old Testament is now being reversed and people from the East are coming to Jerusalem, not this time to conquer the Israelites and take them out of the country, this time they're coming to worship the King of the Jews. Now, the, the, a journey like that from the east would have taken a lot of preparation, especially since we read they came with treasures, they probably came with lots of servants, and there was no cars, there were no planes. It was probably a one- to two-month journey by camel, or, um, and just the, the amount of time it would have taken them to get there shows that they were quite committed to getting to Jerusalem. And then the story starts when they actually arrive in Jerusalem. It says again in verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king. So we have the time frame. Then there are the Magi from the east. These characters come on the scene into Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the scene here. The characters come up on the stage and they come, come into Jerusalem, come to the palace. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And we read that this leads to a lot of trouble, but it tells us a little bit more about the Magi. It tells us they saw a star. It tells us that from seeing the star, they concluded the king of the Jews has been born. And most likely, as we said, they, they knew sacred writings. They, um, Old Testament prophecy had probably come to the east through the exiles, people like Daniel and other prophets. And so there is a prophecy in, um, in Numbers that was understood to be talking about the Messiah and referred to a star. And this is a prophecy of uh, Balaam, uh, the guy who his donkey talked to. So he was not a typical prophet. He was not a follower of God. He was hired to curse the Israelites, but God basically overruled him. And so he prophesied about a Messiah. It says in Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel." So from that verse, the conclusion was that there would be a king of the Jews born and somehow this would be related to a star. And so these magi say, well, we saw a star when we were in the east, we saw this star and based on what we know, maybe they had to do some research, we understood that this star meant that a king of the Jews has been born. So we figured we would come to Jerusalem and worship him, because that's where the king of the Jews lives. And then we've been introduced now to the first king, the king of the Jews, which is the Messiah, Jesus. And now we hear about a second king in verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So we have the king of the Jews, this is Jesus, now we have another king who would call himself the king of the Jews, which is King Herod. Now, you've, if you've been reading the, the New Testament, you've probably heard of King Herod before. Um, there's actually several King Herods in the New Testament, it gets a little bit confusing, it was kind of a messed up family tree. But the Herod we're talking about here is, uh, he was known as Herod the Great. Um, he ruled over, um, over the land of the Jews, until four, what we would call the year four before Christ, is when he died. Um, But he was a pretty powerful man. He did a lot of building, he did a lot of work on the temple in Jerusalem. Not because he particularly worshipped the God of the Jews, he liked building large buildings for his own glory. So he didn't just build the temple in Jerusalem for God, he also built Greek temples and all kinds of buildings. Um, He was pretty, pretty into himself. And, and he considered himself the king of, of the Jews, the king of this nation, although he wasn't really the supreme authority of that area. The Romans were ruling the area, and he was just kind of a sub-leader on the Roman authority. Um, he called himself a king. He wasn't really a king. The emperor in Rome was really the ruler over everything. But he liked to call himself a king, and so he's called King Herod here. So we have the king of the Jews, the Messiah, and now we have King Herod. And King Herod feels threatened by the announcement that a king of the Jews has been born, because obviously he hasn't had a baby. And so he's like, this is, this is, not, this is not good. Um, and the, his reaction to this news of a king of the Jews, of the Messiah being born, is he is troubled. You can see why he feels that he's under threat. But then there's a very interesting phrase in that same verse that says, all Jerusalem with him. So not just Herod was troubled, all Jerusalem with him was troubled. What does that mean? Does it mean that every person in Jerusalem was not wanting a new king of the Jews? No, there were probably many people in Jerusalem that would have gotten rid of Herod very gladly. Um, But if if we look at the Gospel of Matthew, We we find that this term, all Jerusalem, refers primarily to the the leadership in Jerusalem. Not just Herod, but the the full leadership. Um, He uses the term again in uh, Matthew 21. This is where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds shout his name, shout his praise. And if we read it there, it said, uh, When he had entered Jerusalem, this is Matthew 21, 10 through 11. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? That's the same concept. The city was troubled, was stirred up. And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So there were a lot of people that knew who Jesus was. But then it says, well, all Jerusalem was stirred and asked, who is this? And so if we read the context there, it was the Jewish leaders, the leaders in the city, the people in authority that said, hey, who is this guy coming, coming running into our city here, proclaiming, you know, people say he is king, people say he is the prophet, people say he is the Messiah, who is this guy? we don't want this guy here. And so they were stirred up, they were troubled, just like they were here in the beginning. And so that, what it shows is it was not just King Herod that wasn't particularly wanting a Messiah to come, it was the whole leadership with him, both the, the people in his court, his family, his servants, but also the religious and political leadership of the Jews that was not looking for this Messiah to be born and obviously if you read the rest of the Gospel, we'll find out that that same attitude goes through the whole Gospel so far as that they decide to kill Jesus later on. But this shows that from the very beginning they were not wanting to give up their positions, their status. They did not want the status quo to be changed by this new baby, this new king to be born. So Herod after he heard the news, he is troubled and he devises a plan to get rid of this messiah. Um, He first gathers all the the Jewish scribes, the the people that knew the scriptures together and said, well, hey, these these guys from the east have come. They said the king of the Jews has been born. And interestingly, it says in verse 4, he inquired of them where the messiah was to be born. So Herod knows this king of the Jews they're talking about is the messiah. And so they quote from the book of Micah, where it says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now you may think, well, a leader that came out of Bethlehem was David. David was king of the Jews. He was born in Bethlehem. Uh, But this prophecy was made after Jesus' time. And so it's referring to a, a new ruler coming out of Bethlehem. Interestingly, if you read the context, Bethlehem was actually um, uh, conquered by an enemy nation at the time. Really only Jerusalem was kind of holding its own. And the prophet says, guess what, guys? I know this country, we're, we're under foreign opposition right now, but out of this little town that no one really cares about, a new ruler is going to be born. And so people understood this is a clear prophecy about this King of the Jews, this Messiah, that will be born in the future. So when Herod says, well, where's the Messiah to be born? The Jewish leaders say, in Bethlehem. And so then Herod, after he finds out about this, he says he called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So he says, well, when did you first see the star in the sky? Because he wants to know when this baby was born. And then he tells them, uh, go and find the child and then tell me about it so I can also go and worship him. Which sounds very nice, but we know if we read the, the, next, the rest of the chapter, that was not his intent. If you read in verse um, 16, it says, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi because they didn't come back to him and report to him, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So by the time Herod realizes that the, the Magi haven't come back, it's about two years since the, the Magi had first seen the star. And so Herod has all the babies in Bethlehem killed. Uh, before that, God had already appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, hey, get out of Bethlehem, go to Egypt, because Herod is going to try to kill all the boys. Uh, now with uh, what was the size of Bethlehem and its vicinity, the, the thinking is it was probably about between 10 and 30 children that were killed by Herod at that time, all the boys that would have been two years and under. Um, So Herod, when he finds out a Messiah has been born, first he is troubled, and then his response is, I'm going to kill this Messiah. We know his plan didn't work out, but that is what he intends to do. He intends to get rid of it. So now you may think all these Jewish leaders that were with him that knew about this prophecy would maybe go inquire what happened in Bethlehem, but no one else from what we can see here went with these wise men to Bethlehem. Herod was like, you go check and tell me. And everyone else just kind of sat there even though they must have realized that something was going on. So then we go to the second scene the wise men now leave Jerusalem. It says, After they after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So Bethlehem and Jerusalem are about six miles away from each other. Um, so the, the wise men, they leave Jerusalem. As soon as they get out of Jerusalem, it looks like they see this star again. And this time the star guides them exactly to the house in Bethlehem. Now for a star to, to do that, it must be a supernatural phenomenon. It's not, you know, some people argue, well, there were these planets that kind of lined up or something like that. But they cannot determine an exact house within six miles. You know, from, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, they traveled six miles, and the star showed them exactly which house it was. Now, the other implication here is, and this is where this whole idea of, we're so familiar with the story, um, this star In the east, it just appeared. The star appeared. They said, a king has been born of the Jews. We must go to Jerusalem. The star did not guide them that first part of the journey. Otherwise, why would they have been in Jerusalem in the first place? If that star could guide them to the specific house in Bethlehem, why would they go there? But we see that now that they leave Jerusalem, the star is back. And the reaction of the wise men to seeing this star again is... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they didn't just rejoice, they rejoiced exceedingly, and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So I think Matthew is trying to say that they were pretty happy. To the third degree. Now, just kind of, if you wonder why, why would they be like that? So they have just traveled, prepared and traveled for months. They said, yes, we're going to meet a king of the Jews. So we're in Jerusalem now. We say, hey, where is he born? We want to worship him. And the response they got was probably not what they were expecting. King Herod said, well, I don't know if any king of the Jews is being born. Let me find out for you. And he comes back and says, well, if there is a king of the Jews, he was probably born in Bethlehem. So how about you go check for me? And then if he's there, you come back and tell me. This must must have been a little deflating for these wise men after months, Probably a year or more of traveling, preparing, bringing treasures, getting into Jerusalem, and finding out that everything they were hoping for wasn't there. But now, as soon as they leave Jerusalem, this star is back, this star that started it all, and so they realize, yes, he is, we are still on the right track. And not just that, they now also know that another prophecy has been fulfilled by Jesus being born in Bethlehem. So not only do they see the star again, they've also even more confidence now that this baby that they're going to find, or this child they're going to find, is the, the Messiah, the true king of Israel. And so the star guides them to the house, and specifically says house. This is, again, where people say, well, since they're in a house now, you know they must have left the stable. And this is one of those other things, and, and maybe it's a good thing we talk about this after Christmas so we don't have to kind of change all our decorations and everything. But the likelihood that Jesus was born in a stable is very little. If you read the text in the book of Luke, it never says that Jesus was born in a stable. And this idea that he was is kind of based on a number of misconceptions. Uh, a misconception about when he was born, a misconception about how the word in was translated, and a misconception about where mangers were located in that culture. So the first reason people will say, well, he was born in a stable because there was no other place to go, and he was born. But if you read, uh, he was, he, you know, they came to Bethlehem, and they're like, oh, the baby's coming, we need a place for this baby to be born. But if you look at the text in, in, in Luke, it says, while they were there, the time came. So, the idea is they had been in Bethlehem a while when she gave birth. Now, I don't think anyone would say, well, they just decided to stay in the stable for, I don't know, weeks. Um, that seems very unlikely if they had been in the stable in the first place. And the second thing is that the way the word for, it says there was no room in the inn. The word inn. A better translation, in most, mo- most newer translations, you'll find it, it says there was no room in the guest room. We say, well, yep. an inn has guest rooms, yes. But if you look back at that culture, all houses had guest rooms as well. Most of us probably have a guest room for people to come and stay. And then it says they laid him in a manger because there was no room in the guest room. Now, again, if, if you know, we... In our culture, we look at it, and it's like, well, mangers. Mangers go in stables, and barns. That's where we have mangers, maybe outside in the field. But in that culture, most people had, you know, maybe a donkey for traveling, a cow for milk, or a goat for, for milk, whatever whatever worked. And so, the mangers were kept in the house. So most people just had the one building, and if they had an animal, well, you know, the animal will have to come and eat. We'll have like a, an area of the house, the front of the house, where the animals would come in. And, and come and eat. So, no place in the guest room, which was usually in a house, laid him in a manger, which was usually in a house, and then the other thing is, if we understand Middle Eastern culture, there is no way that Mary and Joseph would have been sent to an inn by their family. We know that they had relatives in Bethlehem because they had to go back to their family, and um, I heard someone who was actually a Christian from the Middle East talk about this. He said, "No, for us, It would have been inconceivable that they would have gone to an inn in the first place. They would have stayed with their family. You you always stay with your family if you go somewhere, and you never reject your family. We're We're all kind of in this together as a family. So, the most natural reading of those verses in Luke is that they came to Bethlehem, they stayed with their family but there were a lot of relatives there probably because everyone had to come back to Bethlehem. So the, there, were, there were a lot of people staying in that house. Baby is about to be born, where are we going to put him? Let's take the manger. We have a manger here, we can put him in the manger. And the reason why the manger is so important is because the, the shepherds recognized the right baby by him being in the manger. So like I said, it, it may be a good thing that we talk about this after Christmas, so we're not going to go around and say, like, oh, yours is wrong, yours is wrong. Um, but the, the cool thing about it is this. You know, we, we set up these scenes, and it's Joseph and Mary in the, main, in, in the stable having a baby. Think about how that would be for Mary. Here you are having about, you're about to have your firstborn, and the only person you have with you is your husband, who has probably never seen a baby born in his life. How would that feel? But instead, here she is with all kinds of relatives, Probably aunts, mothers, they have talked many people through childbirth, probably. And so it's a very different picture. Jesus was born in a house with all kinds of people around, rather than in a stable with no one around, that we've kind of made this into a picture because we used our cultural concept of, well, if you go somewhere, you stay in an inn, mangers belong in a stable. And so you can see how we've gotten there but we may have kind of mispictured this a little bit jesus was born among people not on his own holy silent place and so when it talks about they came to the house it's a very natural thing because they'd always been at a house it's the one of the houses of some of joseph's relatives probably already been staying now and and they probably said well you know you have a you have a little child. we're not going to send you back to nazareth with you know, on a donkey with a newborn baby. So they probably stayed in Bethlehem for a while, while they got things together. And this is when these wise men come and go to this house where the star is showing them. And then the reaction they have is they fell to the ground and worshipped him. They finally found this child and they fall to the ground. Just imagine, you know, I have a a nine-month-old. Imagine you have like a one-year-old, Toddler, probably just starting to walk, walking around. There are these a whole bunch of people coming, camels coming to your door, knocking on the door. They come in, they see this one-year-old toddler, and they fall to the ground and worship him. Just imagine that scene. I, I'm not sure how a, how a one-year-old would respond to that, but it says they fell to the ground and worship. Now, falling to the ground was part of of a posture of worship that. We maybe don't do it as often in in our days, but in in the Old Testament, you'll find every time the people are confronted with the holiness, the presence, the glory of God, they're just like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'll I'll raise my hands a little bit. They fall to the ground face down, it says. When when God comes down to the tabernacle, it says all the Israelites fell face down on the ground and worshipped. And so obviously the Bible doesn't say we have to fall face down and worship, Uh, But it could be helpful sometimes to adjust our bodies to reflect the posture of our hearts, because that's, I think, what happens here. The wise men say, this this child is the king of the Jews. We we bow down before him. And so it can be helpful sometimes, and you may try this out and and see what it does for you in, in your prayer time, to actually physically bow down or kneel down or even go face down as a way of expressing what is in your hearts to God. Again, there's no, there's no command in the Bible that says, oh, you have to kneel, you have to do this and this. But it can definitely be very helpful. And what it shows here is that these wise men were, were recognizing they were in the presence of a king that they were to bow down to. And then they give him great treasures, gold, frankincense, myrrh, some of the most expensive, greatest treasures that, you, that they could give. And you may wonder, well, what, what happened to these gifts? Because, you know, obviously, Joseph and Mary have, are pretty rich now with all these gifts. Um, and, you know, the next thing they do is they have to flee to Egypt for Herod. So most likely, God provided this for them to provide while they had to flee to Egypt, survived in Egypt, until eventually they got to come back after Herod died. And then the, the last thing we see is that the Uh, The wise men are warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, so they left their own country by another way. And so God obviously knows that Herod has in mind to kill Jesus, and so he tells the wise men, don't go back. I don't want you to be a part of what Herod is doing here. Um, And then the wise men go back to their own country. We never hear of them again. So they're just in there for a short time. We, we had Jerusalem. They, they, they rode in, came into Jerusalem. All kinds of things happened there. They then rode on to Bethlehem. Stuff happened there. And then they leave, go back to their own country. And like I said, we, we never hear of them again. And so what does this mean for us then, this story? Why, why does Matthew, like I said, there were probably countless stories of people that came to meet Jesus he could have chosen from. And if he wanted us to know more about the wise men, he could have told us about them back in the East, what was going on, who they were. But he chooses to talk about the wise men. He chooses to talk about them in Jerusalem, meeting King Herod and everything that happens there. And he chooses to talk about them in Bethlehem, worshiping the child. So there's a couple of implications that I think we can draw from this for for our lives. Um, The first one is, from that, that contrast that Matthew makes between the, the wise men from the East, again, the East being that plays away from God, and Herod and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. There's a, a contrast. The, the wise men rejoice and worship, their responses. Herod is troubled and tries to kill. So Matthew is, is putting these two responses to this new messiah before us and say, hey, which, which way are you going to be? Now, most of us would probably say, well, you know, I've, I've never planned to kill Jesus, so I'm probably not really on Herod's side, I'm probably more on the wise man's side, um, which is good. But if we think a little bit further, this, this king of the Jews, Jesus, he's not just this one-year-old toddler, he grew up to be a man and he Through his words, through the words in the New Testament, this king is, is giving us commands. This king said, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. This king, through others, says you must forgive others no matter what they've done to you. He says, pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He says, husbands, sacrifice and give yourselves up for your wife just as Christ gave himself up for the church. So that's not just a little bit of sacrifice. He gave up his life for the church. So this king is calling us to to sacrifice, to give up, to surrender. And so we may say, yes, we worship this king, but what do we do with the commands that the king gives us? Do we respond like the wise men with joy and saying, yes, you're my king, and with worship, surrender, and saying, yes, whatever you ask me, I will do? Or do we respond like Herod, and we are troubled by what this king is asking us to do, and we try to put him and his commands out of the way. We say, well, yes, I know you asked me to forgive. Yes, I know you asked me to sacrifice. Yes, I know you asked me to surrender. But I'm just going to put this aside for now. And I'm not going to listen to you. And I'm not going to worship and surrender to you. So while we may not be Herod in the sense that we want to kill Jesus, the attitudes behind what he was doing could very well be ours when we read the Scripture, when we listen to what Christ is telling us. So I don't know if if there's maybe something specific that God has shown you recently in in your reading or sermons you've heard that that you know Christ is asking you to do, and you're kind of like, well, I don't wanna or I can't, but the challenge here is you know, these wise men could have said, well, I don't want to travel three, two months to go there. Or once they go to Herod, they said, well, I guess, I guess it wasn't worth it. We'll just go back home. But they said, no, we're going to give all these treasures. We're going to do whatever it takes to worship this king and, and bow down to him. And then I think Matthew is telling us, that should be our attitude. We, will, we should be doing whatever it takes to worship this king and bow down to him. Now, the second... The second thing that we notice that's kind of Matthew's main point is this great reversal from the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, everything, something was wrong, someone was going away from the Jews. that went to the East. Now these people from the East have come to worship the King of the Jews. So these were people that, according to, to the Jews, probably in the Old Testament, were people in a place where, where they just couldn't worship God. They couldn't, couldn't know God. You had to come to Jerusalem, to the temple. You had to be a Jew to be able to worship God. And Matthew says, no, things have changed now. Because no one's asking these Magi to become Jews. But So the point Matthew is making is that this, this new king of the Jews is not really just for the Jews. He is a king of the whole world and everyone can come to him to worship, even people from this dreaded place, the East. And now obviously we don't have the same kind of sense. We, I don't think anyone would just say, well, you're from the East, so you're, you can worship God. But we can, people can often have a sense that I am, I am not good enough for God. We will say, well, often people will say, well, I'm good enough, I don't need God, but I think I've found that oftentimes people will also say, well, I have done all this and this and this, I don't think I can be acceptable to God. And what Matthew is saying is that even people from the East, even people from the place where people ran away from God, are now acceptable to God and can come and worship this king. So maybe, maybe some of us here will, will think back of our lives and say, well, you know, I've done all, all of this. Can I really be acceptable to God? Can I really be forgiven? Maybe you think, well, you know, I've been lying so much or I've stolen, I've cheated someone. Um, I've, I've done horrible. If you knew what I had done, you would not be saying I was acceptable to God. But here's... The cool thing, this, this boy, this one-year-old toddler that's running around the house, grows up, becomes a man, lives a perfect life, dies on our behalf, and then rises again. And that, that sacrifice, Jesus dying on the cross, his blood that he spilled is enough to forgive anything. It's powerful enough to forgive every sin committed by every nation in all history. So whatever it is that you have done that you say, well, you know, I just don't know if God can accept me. I just don't think I'm good enough for God. Well, whatever you have done, is it worse than every sin committed on all history in every nation on the whole earth? Because Jesus can forgive all of that if people surrender and follow him. So he, his blood is powerful enough to forgive whatever it is that you think makes you unworthy to be part of God his family. No matter what it is that you have done, Matthew specifically here picks people that are representatives of people far away from God, and he says these people are now acceptable to God because of Jesus Christ. And the same is true for all of us. No matter what it is that we have done, if we believe in Jesus, if we follow Jesus, we are acceptable to God. So that's Matthew's second point here with the story. The first one was, you know, how do we respond to the king? In, in worship or do we disregard him? Second is, well, whatever it's done that we have done, we can be we are acceptable to God now. We believe and follow this king. And then there's a, a third point here. Because we see that the response of the Magi was to worship this king of the Jews. And in the Gospel of Mark. Four, there's four instances of this word worship being used. There's this one, there's the one where Jesus walks on the water, steals the storm, and the disciples worship and say, who is this man? And then there's two more instances, both at the very end. Uh, the, the women at the tomb, when they see Jesus, to worship Him, and then the very last people to see Jesus on earth worship Him. So here we have the Magi, the first people in the Gospel of Mark, in his story, to see Jesus, their responses to worship, and if we turn to Matthew 28, I'm going to turn there with me, we'll see that the very last people that saw Jesus before he went up to heaven also responded in worship. Well, let's turn to Matthew 28. Uh, let's read from verse 16 through verse 20. It says, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designed. So this is, there's 11, you know, we know Jesus had 12. This is after Judas Iscariot has, has um, betrayed him, committed suicide. So there's 11 apostles left now, the disciples. So the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus has designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. So there's that word, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the similarity here is the the worship. The difference here is that whereas the Magi, the wise men, they came into the story and went out the story again, here the disciples and all of us come into the story and we remain part of this story. This is something that Jesus tells his 11 disciples to do, but he says at the, very, at the end of it, to the end of the age. Now the disciples obviously did not live to the end of the age, so this is a charge to all his disciples. This is where all of us, all of us come into, into the picture here. And what is it that Jesus tells us to do? Well he first says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, mirroring the fact that he is king from the very beginning. And his charge to us is, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Now the the interesting thing is, if you look back at the story of the magic, how did God communicate to people? Through stars, through dreams, all kinds, of, all kinds of supernatural ways. But he says, well, now the way that the good news, the gospel, is going to be brought to people is primarily through those who worship him. Now, God can still use stars and dreams and whatever he wants. If, if you look at, if you read stories of, of conversions in Muslim countries, at least half of them involve some sort of dream that people have had saying, hey, go talk to this person, he will tell you the way of salvation, or people will say, oh, Jesus somehow appeared to me in my dream. So God is still speaking to people through dreams um, in many ways, uh, especially, like I said, if if you read those conversion accounts from the Middle East and other Muslim places, but what Jesus is saying here is that primarily now the spreading of of the word about the king should be done through the disciples who worship him. And all of us, all of us are part of that, obviously. So then the question is, well, how do we do that? What, What should be our response? How do we disciple people? Which means baptizing and teaching. And baptizing meaning we don't just go around and say, hey, you want to be baptized? Let me baptize you. But baptism was a way of saying, yes, I am now a follower of Jesus. And the baptism specifically was in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, saying, yes, I am now a follower of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how do we disciple in that way? How do we make followers of Christ and then teach them to obey all He commands? Well, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it says there are 11 disciples here. How did Jesus disciple these 11 men? Well, he invited them to come be with him, spend three years with them, teaching them, um, letting them see what he was doing, and then letting them be there when he was crucified. Now they all kind of ran away, but he also brought restoration to them. And so we see the same thing with Paul. Paul says in and. Uh, he first talked about this when he goes going through First Thessalonians. Paul says, I shared my life with you. So Paul didn't just come into t- Like and say, oh, here's the gospel, goodbye. He said, let me live with you, let me be with you, let me show you what, what it is like to follow Christ. And so the big part of, of discipleship that I think we, we need to take away is that it involves relationships with people. It involves being with people, sharing our lives with people. And so the question here is, do we live our lives with people that don't know Christ? People that need to hear Christ and then need to be taught about Christ. So, do you know your neighbors? Do you know whether they're followers of Christ or not? Have you had them over for meals? Do you know where they're at? These people God brought right to you, um... Or do you, have, do you know about your friends? Do you know whether they know him or not? Um, do you have places that you are in your life where you are in contact with people that don't know Jesus? Because the thing is, our culture is changing. And c- coming from Europe, the changes there ha- have already happened, more or less. But it used to be such that, yeah, even though people don't really believe in Jesus, they would still know what a church is, and they would still maybe say, oh, something bad happens, maybe I should go to church and see what this is about. But the majority of people now don't know what church is and will never set foot in a church, no matter what happens in their lives. So the only way to disciple people that will never come to church is for us to come into their lives. Now you may say, well, you know, this is all good talk and obviously I want to do that, but we're, we're busy, we have a lot going on here. Um, and I love this quote from uh, it's a book called Gaining by Losing. It's a book that um, most of the church leadership is, is reading right now. Um, he talks about making disciples here, and the quote I think is, will be on the screen. Um, it says, you might say, well, when would I possibly have time to go out and evangelize? I barely have enough time to be a good husband, father, and employee. I definitely don't have time to add a program of evangelism. Well, we are a culture of busy people, that's for sure. But the answer is simple, be busy with people. The Great Commission is not an addition to your life, but an essential component of every other part of it. The Spirit fills you to testify as you go throughout life. I once heard a lady lament that she couldn't take her kids to soccer practice because she had too much ministry activity at a church. Why not look at soccer practice as a place of ministry? There are more lost people in the crowd of parents at soccer practice than there are at the church. And I love the, the line that I underlined here. It says, uh, the Great Commission is not an addition to your life, but an essential component of every other part of it. And I think what he's saying is that we, we, don't, you know, we go about the life, and it's like, oh, yeah, I have to evangelize. You know, Jesus wants me to evangelize, so I'm doing all this, and then let me think about, well, how can I preach the gospel to someone now? But he's saying, no, everything we do... Is building relationships with people, building friendships with people, is meeting people, and that's how this whole discipleship evangelism works. Now, sometimes people will say, "Well, um, this quote that I think is attributed to Francis of Assisi say, well, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words.' If you heard that, you may have heard that. Um, well, it's kind of a uh, contradiction because what is the gospel? Well, the word gospel means good news, right? Now, good news, is that something that you bring to someone by just kind of living your life a certain way? No, good news, the definition of good news, news is that you speak it to someone. So we can't just say, well, I'm just going to live my life a certain way, I'm just going to live my life you know following Jesus and then people will just kind of get to know Jesus through my life that's not how it works the gospel the def- very definition of the gospel requires that it is also spoken to people because it is good news now obviously there's a time and a place for it in in relation but that's why it's so important that we make sure we arrange our lives in such a way that we meet people that need to hear the gospel the last part of the the charge that jesus gives here so he says make disciples um, teach them and then he says i am with you always even to the end of the age so jesus is just about to go up to heaven and leave them but he says well my encouragement to you is i am with you always and we may say well you know we know from the rest of the bible that christ is always with us because he's everywhere but this phrase i am with you or i will be with you there's a lot of meaning behind this phrase if you look at this phrase throughout the Scripture, so there's. I want to look at a couple of examples where God uses this phrase. Um, the first one is in Exodus chapter three, where God, you know, the, the account of the burning bush. Moses is in the desert uh, with his sheep, and then he sees a bush, and he goes to the bush, and God, God basically tells him, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt to set my people free. And Moses says, Well, who am I? I mean, who am I to do that? I'm not. I'm not great. Um, And and God doesn't say, oh, Moses, I really think you are a great person, and I really think you can do this. God doesn't say that. He says in in verse 11 and 12 of Exodus 3, it says, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Egypt out of Egypt, sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he, God said, well, certainly I will be with you. So God doesn't say, well, Moses, you know, remember, you, you are a pretty good guy. Remember, you grew up in the palace. I'm sure Pharaoh will listen to you. God doesn't go into building up Moses. God just tells them, hey, I am with you. It doesn't matter who you are. I am with you. And the same charge is brought to all different other people. Um, Joshua, who took over from Moses. Joshua 1, verse 5. God says to Joshua, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. I mean, and it's something similar in, in Jeremiah 1, 6 through 8. This is where God is calling Jeremiah. He says, Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. So Jeremiah says, Well, you want me to be a prophet, but I don't know how to speak. I'm young. I can not do this. I mean, the whole definition of a prophet is someone who speaks the word of God. So I think you got the wrong guy here. Um, and then God, it says, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So throughout the Old Testament, this phrase is used again and again. when God calls people, and the people say, well, I can't do this. And then God says, I know, but I am with you. And that's the thing that matters here, because it's really not about you doing it anyway, because if you did it yourself, it wouldn't bring any glory to me. So I am going to do it through you. So that encouragement, that promise of God is not just for the 11 disciples, as we said, because he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. The, the promise, the encouragement still applies. So we may say, well, I know some people are really good at, at being outgoing, making friends, and you know, going to places where, where, where we meet people, but I'm, I'm an introvert, and I don't know what to say, and... I just don't think I'm I'm someone who can make disciples because I just don't like other people or like don't like being with other people. I don't like meeting new people. Well God says well, what does God say to you? He says, I will be with you. And that's all you need. I mean Yeah, there's people that are extroverts that meet people all the time, but how much cooler if someone who really doesn't like that kind of thing, goes out and meets someone and builds a friendship, and that person then comes to Christ. That's God at work right there. And so, from, from this passage in Matthew and, and the Great Commission that he links to it, I think in this new year, let's, let's make some very specific prayers. Let's pray that in this new year, we will have an opportunity to build a friendship, build a relationship with someone who doesn't know Christ and be able to share the gospel with them. Let's make that our prayer. Let's think about you know, how can we then come into contact with people that aren't believers. What kind of places should I go? Which neighbors should I reach out to? How can I bring people into my life? Because we may be so busy with people here at church that we haven't really thought about people outside the church. Or maybe as a, as a SALT group, as a small group, you can talk and say, well, how can we as a SALT group make sure we, we reach people? Maybe, maybe we can start inviting people that don't go to church. Maybe people you know, people maybe hesitant to say, oh, come to church with me. Maybe we'll say, Well, I don't want to go to church. Bad experience, have a church in the past. I don't like people at church. I don't like listening to a sermon. I don't like singing songs. I don't want to go to church. They say, Well, how about you come to my house or come to my friend's house with some people, some friends of mine from church? We'll have food. We won't sing games. There will not be a pastor preaching. And you know, maybe maybe someone will say, Well, you know, let me. No, you're my friend, I trust you, I'll, I'll go with you and see what this is all about. Um, so let, let's make sure our, our SALT groups, you know, maybe spend some time this week and say, hey, how can we be used to disciple other people that are right now outside our church? And then let, there, there's a picture I want us to kind of think about here a little bit. As we Now, we've been talking about this building project for many years, and and one of the reasons is this this auditorium is going to be bigger, There's going to be about 75 to 100 extra seats in here, and, and obviously our desire is that more people will come to this church. Now, most of the time churches grow when either new people move into the area that look for a church and find a church, or people leave one church and then look for another church but how much cooler would it be if, if we said, hey, we're going to have 75 extra seats here. Let's just imagine, let's, let's see this in front of us. Let's see if we can fill those 75 or however many seats with people that maybe don't know Christ right now or are just kind of getting there right now. And, and we come alongside, we, we build a relationship with them and they come to know Christ through that discipling process you know there's there's a lot of us and and if you know it it doesn't require all of us to meet 10 new people it just requires maybe one or two people that we that we know that we start to get to know and you know it may take sure it may take a long time but if we could fill up all these additional seats with people that have never known Christ never followed Christ how much greater would that be than just saying oh we have more space now so people want to come visit we'll have more space for people that come to visit because Christ said, I will, I will build my church, and we keep talking about that, um, but obviously it, we know it's more than building a building. It's the people inside the building. It's, um, but as I said, the, yeah, there can be more people inside this building without the church of Christ actually growing. If all the new people that come to our building are people that come from other churches, our church has changed, has grown, but the universal church of Jesus Christ has not grown. There are still just as many people in the universal church of Jesus Christ, whether they sit on this seat, or a seat across the road, or a few roads down. The, the church, capital C, is the same. So if we want to, if it's our desire to grow the universal church of Christ, we shouldn't just say, oh, we have more seats so people can come to our church. We should say, hey, how can we meet people that don't know Christ? How can we build friendships with them to hopefully see them come and fill up one of those seats in our new building. It's not about it's not about growing our local church, it's about growing the, the universal church of Christ. And that will only happen through this process of evangelism, discipleship, living our life with other people. So we've looked at we've looked at the story of the the wise men in Matthew. We've seen that Matthew, you know, brings us this story for a reason and in a very specific way because he wants us to worship this king in the way we obey him. He wants us to come to this king no matter what happened in the past and he wants us to then say, hey, now I am part of the story of this king. The king of the Jews is part of my story. I'm part of his story. God now wants to use us, every one of us, to go and show others this King of the Jews. And so are we are we willing to maybe go to that, go out of our comfort zone, or may, to make some actual changes in our lives and say, well, I don't actually have anywhere where I meet non-believers. Well, how, can we, how can we change our lives? How can we change our salt groups? How can we even change some of the things that we do, some of the places we go, some of the stuff that our kids are involved with, to to make sure we have that opportunity to lay the others to the King of the Jews. So let's as we start this new year, let's pray and and commit that to Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his his life in our place, his death in our place, his resurrection. We thank you that we have come to worship him and we thank you that we are now part of, of your story, that we are now part of how you want to work in this world. Father, I pray that as we think of this new year, will give us that vision, that desire for other people to worship you, the desire to, to build relationships, build friendships, and to see these extra seats that we will have here filled with people that don't know you now, but that will know you through, because you are working in us and through us to grow your church. Amen.